Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1977 David Lynch debut film, Eraserhead. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm excited, Sam. I'm doing great. Barrett, um, I was thinking about how to start this episode, and I and and so I want to start by uh, telling you a couple things because I know I know this is one of your favorite films. So I want to start by telling you. I came to love this film this week. So, so know that that's the, that's where this conversation is going to come from. Um, I went on a journey with this film. I, yeah, uh, I love it. Now what's interesting to me is I have no idea why you love this film. I know why I love it. And I am perfectly open to the fact that we may love this for entirely different reasons. And that's what excites me about this conversation. Um, Because the more I've thought about this movie the more I'm convinced, like, this is truly great. And it took me a while to get there. And what was interesting about it, and I think Lynch would appreciate this, is I didn't, You oftentimes we'll watch a movie on this podcast and I will watch it and be like, I think that, like, I, sometimes I just love it the first time I see it. Sometimes I'll watch it and I'll be like, I think that was great, but I don't know what to make of this. And then I'll read a bunch of stuff and what I read will lead me to watch the movie differently. This time I watched the movie for the first time and it felt like it was three hours long and it felt like, like I, like I was being haunted by this movie. I, I thought it was great, but I, but, and then I read a bunch of stuff and I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay, fine. That stuff's fine, but it doesn't help me. And then I watched it again and the movie felt like it was 45 minutes long. It felt like it flew by and then it just started to work on my brain. And I spent a couple days just thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I started thinking, like, I I think I understand part of this movie. I this might be a strange statement, but I feel seen by this movie. Like I feel like like this movie understands something about me, which might be a strange thing to say. I don't know, but um I'm excited to get into this. But let's start with you. Uh You've talked. We've talked about Lynch. This is our third Lynch movie we've we've done on this podcast. Previously, we talked about the Straight Story and the Elephant Man. Um, this is the most Lynchian movie we've watched, though. I think like like those two are they 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 both fit within his body of work, but they're also uh, maybe a little more linear and rooted in this world in a kind of way where where. This feels like other Lynch things I've seen. So, so let me know your your history with uh, Eraserhead in particular. Well, you know, my history with Eraserhead, Sam, is kind of similar. I don't know if you remember when we talked about Persona a couple of years ago, that Persona was a film that I saw posters for before I ever saw the film. And there was something about the image uh, that, that, that struck me. And I think that Eraserhead was the same way. I saw those posters and... I forgot this morning to bring the, uh, the, the mug that my daughter made for me with that famous shot of Jack Nance and the sawdust up around his head. There was just something visual about that image that just caught my attention. And I don't know what else I heard about the film, but, you know, it's one of those films where, as you said, it came out in 77, started to kind of gain its reputation on what used to be the old midnight movie circuit. I'm not sure those exist anymore. Um, and by the time I saw it in 1980, I, I sort of knew, I knew a little bit about it, but I wasn't quite sure uh, what I was getting into. And I guess, you know, why do I, why do I love it? Well, partly it's because I've had this long history with it, but also um, 
I've always had a taste for dark uh, and surrealistic uh, art, whether it's written or whether it's uh, visual. And so I, I think it's cathartic for me because I'm actually a pretty positive person. Um, so for some reason, it's cathartic for me to go into these dark places. And actually, if you know a little bit about David Lynch's life, that's the way Lynch himself is. Lynch is not a dark person. He's actually a very cheerful person. He was a Eagle Scout as a kid. He had this kind of idyllic American upbringing. And, and then it's like all this darkness comes out in his visions of the, of the world. And I, I think I sometimes function that way myself. I, I love dark art, but I hate dark. I hate thinking the world itself is dark, but I love exploring works of art that actually, you know, posit that. So I guess Eraserhead, it has that kind of effect for me. I guess I also have to get out at the beginning that there's a constellation of filmmakers that I like and who like each other. So David Lynch loves Herzog. And in fact, he and Herzog collaborated on a film, My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done, uh, which Lynch produced and Herzog uh, directed. Uh, Eraserhead was one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite films. And when Lynch was filming um, The Elephant Man in London, he actually met with Kubrick and they talked about that. Um, Sunset Boulevard, is one of Lynch's top five favorite films. And when he made Twin Peaks, he named his character, the FBI director, Gordon Cole, after an unseen character in Sunset Boulevard. Um, he, he loves, um, I'm trying to remember the, the oh, he, he, the, yeah, he says all, all of Kubrick's films are in his top 10, if that's possible. So there's something about this, the cinematic universe that I gravitate towards uh, that seems to center around David Lynch for whatever reason. Um, so was this the first Lynch work you encountered? Because he said he saw it around 1980. Yeah. So that would have been when Elephant Man came out. Did you come to this before that? That's, you know, that's what I'm trying to remember because I was actually asking my wife because we were in college together in 1980 when both Elephant Man came out and we saw Eraserhead the first time. Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw Eraserhead ahead of time. Because uh, I remember watching Elephant Man and thinking, oh, I can see how this was made by the guy that made Eraserhead. So do you remember your first impressions of seeing this film for the first time? And I realize, it, I assume this is a movie you've seen many times in your life. Uh, yeah, I can't remember how many times. Yeah. So, so, but, so, I, and, and that's exactly, so I don't, you don't strike me as somebody who is a, a, a like constant rewatcher of things. I'm always struck when we talk about how, infrequently you've seen some of the movies you really love so so um uh I, I think maybe that's a generational thing too i think people of my generation tend to watch things over and over and over and over again more uh and my kids generation even more so um but do you remember your first impressions upon seeing this uh well first before i answer that question i want to go back to watching it over and over because um when i was given one of the dvd releases of the film for christmas several years ago because lynch himself put out his own dvd before it became a criterion edition um i was given it as a christmas gift and i began a tradition and this is going to sound rather sick to some viewers listeners i began a tradition of watching Eraserhead every christmas day and i did that for several years with my children uh, my wife has no interest in seeing the film again and and i and i have an argument for why that's appropriate because this is of course a film about a kind of um a kind of miraculous birth i suppose you could say um but yeah my first impression was i don't understand what's going on but i love it 
Um, and and to, to me, it was just a film that I, I just I just felt immersed in this world. And even though it's taken me years to kind of develop my interpretation of the film, um, I just I felt like I don't need to understand it to say that this is just an amazing experience. Yeah. And I think that was, that was one of the things it was really helpful to watch the shining. And then this, because our whole shining conversation, we kept circling back to like, you can interpret and do all of this, but you don't really have to. It's not like the movie requires that in order to be great in order to be interesting in order to have a kind of depth. Um, And that's the way that I approach this. What's interesting is as I, as I approached it that way, I started to, at least in my own head, come up with ways of understanding the movie without really trying. Like it just sort of, I think, like I said, I think this movie, at least for me, it just kept working on me. It, it's like it found, it, it set up a place in my brain and was like, we're going to keep turning. Even if, even if you're not going to actively think about this, um, we're going to keep coming up with ways to think about it. Um, now I will say this movie didn't have um I was I was sort of expecting to be like scared by this movie more mm. in some ways. Uh and it didn't have that effect uh which which was which surprised me a little bit. So I will say another another part of my history with this and I mentioned this last week is there were images from this movie that I was expecting because mm. the my first encounter with this was in high school having a high school english teacher describe something from a racer head and i can't even precisely remember what he described but I'm, i'll tell you this it wasn't in the movie <laughs> like at least what i remember him saying i kept waiting for something to happen and it turns out like oh that's not in this movie um so so which actually worked great because i had this expectation for something which never came mm. uh, which which seems sort of fitting in in lots and lots of ways um so my goal for today barrett is to clear out some space uh because i want to hear you talk about this movie my other goal is to avoid as much as possible questions that are framed around what do you think blank is all about i don't want to ask those questions we might at the end i have a list of things that it's just like i don't know what to make of but um but i'm less interested in like what do you think this thing is supposed to mean Mm. um so let's start maybe with two movie making things that i think are brilliant and interesting about this movie the first one is the most obvious which is that this is a film driven by and maybe even about its soundscape. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of music. There is some music in this film, and it's very, it's very intentional and important. There's not a lot of music in this film, but this is a, this is maybe one of the great soundscape movies I've ever heard. Uh, I imagine. So the first time you saw this was in a theater. Mm-hmm. Okay, I imagine this is a great movie in a theater with a sound system that sort of fills the room. Another great way to watch this, which is both times I watched it, is with headphones on. Mm-hmm. So you're really immersed. You can't get away from the sound because uh, there are stretches of this movie that have long stretches that have no dialogue. I think when he when he brought the script to AFI when he was yeah. making it, it was like 20 pages long. So they thought, oh, great, this will be like a 20 minute movie. But so much of this movie does not have dialogue in it. But there is not a moment in this movie where there is silence until the until the movie ends. And then you have because even things that are silent are not silent. There is this almost relentless sound to this movie and layers of sound to this movie, um, which I just find uh, 
such a huge component to this. So, I mean, if we're thinking about connections with things we've seen, this definitely connects to The Shining, where, again, the sound design is so important there. This is a very different sound design, but it seems like almost one of the main characters of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lynch has talked a lot about that, about, you know, the the important what you were saying earlier, Sam, the importance of seeing the film in, in the theater. Uh, he and Alan Splett spent um, about a year on the sound design. Uh, and there are there are points in the film where they're they're layering like 15 different sounds. Um, and Lynch is very uh I mean, he's kind of a Renaissance man, right? He's, he's, he starts out as a visual artist, as a painter, does a little bit of sculpting. He moves into film, but he's always been interested in, in sound and music. And in some ways, um, what's happening in Eraserhead kind of pre, is a precursor of kind of the ambient sound movement. And in fact, last several years, uh, Lynch has produced a couple of ambient sound uh, albums. So yeah, you're right that this film is so much about how things sound and it's not just it's not just the fact that it's sound but it's also the kind of sound that it is um you know lynch is very interested in in the industrial landscape both visually and hourly so a lot of the sounds are steam hissing machine machinery clanging um he loves he's obsessed with electricity crackling you can see electricity crackling in any number of his films and and electricity and uh electricity pulsating so you get that in twin peaks uh you get it in blue velvet you get it in um uh lost highway you you, you get it in the new twin peaks where actually the dale cooper character comes through an electrical outlet and 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 when lynch talks about these things he will say you know i I don't know what it is. There's just something about it that I that, that I that I like, and so I think it's not only that the sound is important, but the sound is um, it's it, it explores various ways in which sound is mechanized. I mean, even in the singing of the song, you know, in heaven everything is fine. Even there, you get a, a timber in the voice that suggests a kind of mechanical manipulation. So one of the things I see going on in the film is that Lynch is really interested in the the connection between the mechanical and the organic. Uh, we can talk more about that later, but there's a lot of images and references in the film that make it su su suggest that it's hard to figure out what's mechanical or what's natural or ways in which what is natural actually seems mechanical. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I mean, thinking about the, the music, the other piece of music we hear is the uh, the Fats Waller organ, which mm -hmm. is played on a, a record player. So you also have all of the record player sound, the mm -hmm. the like, you know, the, the 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 physical vinyl crackle as you're hearing it. One of the things that I think and this is maybe to connect it back to another film that we watched where sound was crucial. Um, so much of the sound, the sources of the sound and is is not discernible it's not like you're hearing something that you're seeing right that sometimes it is just there is sound in this world mm -hmm. um which makes me think about uh fritz long's m now mm. i remember um i don't think this i don't know if this was something long said or if it was something in the commentary but it talked about how when sound is used right it can it can key you into things far beyond the frame mm. so like the sound so much of this movie happens in this apartment room, right? It's it's all it's all in this one room. But so much of the sound is there is a lot of sound from that room, but then there is this sound beyond the room as well. So there's a degree to which this is like 
this movie involves interior exteriors, which leads me to the other filmmaking piece of this that is i think really interesting and really well done which is what lynch does visually with scale so there is uh when when uh you don't we don't see a lot of henry outside but when we do see him outside Mm -hmm. it is he is so small Mm -hmm. compared to this you know, industrial landscape that he is in. So, I mean, like there's this, the great shot, I think it might even be the first time we see him. He is very, he's at the center of the frame, very much up close. And then he walks away and he gets so small as he goes through this huge, I don't know if he's walking under a bridge or into some, or through some giant doorway, Mm -hmm. but he is so very small compared to the world. And then then I think uh, close to the next shot is him, walking just from left to right across the frame. And he's so tiny compared to this, you know, the world he is in. Um, and then, I mean, he does other things with the opening shots of this film, right? You get this, the big rock or planet, whatever that thing is. And you get, um, you get uh, Henry's head, Henry's head, those things superimposed over each other. So we're, we're seeing, you know, kind of different things with scale there. And then we also get the very small, we get the world, inside of the radiator mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. you know and this is one of those things that uh struck me really uh like at a, at a kind of personal visceral level because i remember as a child being really interested in spaces like the interior of the radiator mm. but that like that that thinking about like how that also has its own landscape. And if you were small and you were inside of this, it's like this in and of itself is a whole world. Um, And I remember uh, another version of this is I remember being a little kid and laying on the floor and looking up at the ceiling and, and realizing this room is also a room. If you flip it upside down and how much different my house would look if you were, if the ceiling was the floor, and like how you would navigate spaces differently. And it's, so when I, when I saw it start to go into the radiator, I was like, I feel like I am a child again, exploring these tiny spaces and imagining them as big spaces I was occupying or me being very small. So it's like, this is where, when I talk about feeling seen by this movie, there are just moments where it's like, Oh, I get that. That it, it, so you get these, these pictures of, or these images of Henry, sort of staring into the radiator, even before the world in there, the stage kind of thing appears. I, I, that just struck me so powerfully as like, I understand that. That, yeah. And, and, and Lynch said that there was actually something he said he'd never seen a radiator like that. Evidently the radiator really was constructed in such a way that it looked like there was a stage. And so he just, that's just a typical Lynchian approach. It's like, you know, he was just inspired by this idea that maybe there's actually a stage inside the radiator. And it, it is interesting to note that um, how Henry's imagination becomes kind of progressively darker as the film goes along. So initially, it's just kind of this lovely little thing, but then it gets more and more and more um, detached from reality and more and more problematic. So here's what I think is amazing about this movie. If you just watch what's on the screen or even better, you try to describe this movie to somebody, it is absurd. It is unreal. Like it's, 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 it doesn't make sense when you describe it to somebody. It doesn't seem, it does it seems unreal. It seems dreamlike, Mm. but I feel like the, 
emotional, personal, interpersonal, interpersonal experiences in this movie are are so realistic, even though what's happening is so absurd. Um, and so I, I, well, here's what I mean by this. Like, um, if we think about Henry walking outside, right? Right. We, we talked about sort of how small he is compared to the landscape, right? So I feel like the, the outside world is so strange because you also never see another human being you know, another human being outside i don't know if you see another living thing outside i'm trying to think if you even see vegetation outside or if it is just buildings right and there is something that seems like post-apocalyptic or unreal about that but at the same time it captures the feeling of loneliness of moving through the world that you can feel even if there are people passing on the street when you're in a certain state in life right like like the world feels like what it looks like to watch Henry outside, even though what you're seeing is not actually connected or, or, or realistic to what you would actually see if you went outside and filmed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the only, the, 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 aside from Mary and her family, I think the only outside people you see are the the quick shot of the two men struggling in the in the alley below mm. that's, that's about it but you know i, I want to say something about about the the sam because you know sometimes the way that dreams are represented in film is actually not the way we experience dreams right i mean i think about my dreams i had a particularly vivid dream last night and in the dream i don't think it's a dream right when, when you're experiencing a dream the world is actually quite at least in my experience the world is quite clear and, and, and strange juxtapositions can happen, but they don't seem strange at the time, right? Because it, you, you accept them. And I guess you could call that dream logic. But it doesn't mean to me that dreams look surreal. Dreams look realistic while you're experiencing them. Um, so, the, so the fact that what's happening in a racer head is so lucid and clear is not necessarily at odds with it being dreamlike at the same time. And it's also why I think it's very difficult in the film, intentionally so, to distinguish between what is actually happening and what is Henry imagining or, or dreaming. And as the film goes along, it becomes increasingly difficult to separate those, those realities. Absolutely. Yeah. And I especially caught that the second time through. I, I, because this, the movie felt so much faster the second time through, I kept thinking like, wait a minute, is this part really happening or is this something that's going to end up feeling like it doesn't it, like like it doesn't make sense like when mary leaves but then she's back and i'm like well is that part of dream or did she really come back is this one night is this multiple nights which also again dreams have that feeling another example of what i was talking about i i, I have a bunch of these um when he goes to visit mary's parents i mean that's such a strange set of scenes at the same time he captures perfectly that awkward feeling when you go, when there's somebody, you know, like on the outside world. So I think of like when you're at college is a perfect example, because when you're a college student, you know, and you even often live with the other students, right? So, you know them, but there's something about when you go back home with them and now you're visiting their personal space. Mm -hmm. And there's all these things that to them seem very normal, but to you seem very strange. And then you're interacting with people that they feel very comfortable with their parents or people. They you know, like that's very normal. But for you, it is so everything is so strange. So I think about things like 
you know, they sit down and, and this is another great example of a sound thing. You hear the strangest sound when they sit there and it takes a long time before they cut over to the nursing puppies. And you're like, <laughs> oh, at least now I know what that sound is because it's really unsettling before that. And it's the kind of thing where maybe to marry and her parents that this dog with this litter of puppies nursing is a very normal thing, but, but there's something very strange about it. So, so I feel like he captures the, the awkwardness of like meeting the parents of somebody that you're dating, you know, like, like, like that's, that's kind of perfect, even though it's completely unreal. Like, like if you ever had that actual experience, you would, you would run, <laughs> but, but, it's the, the, all of the emotional feelings of that, or the things that brings up in your head or your heart or, or whatever actually struck me as this is what it feels like to walk into somebody else's private space and interact in a place where they are comfortable and you are not, or they are at least used to it. And you are foreign to that. I thought that's like, that set of scenes was kind of amazing in that way. And I think we have to add along with that, Sam, is, um, you know, another kind of obvious point about what Lynch does with with the, that kind of atmosphere is the, the way that people speak in the film. Mm. So it's awkward, not only because it is an awkward social situation, but it's a bit awkward because it's, it's a very, um, it reminds me a little bit, a very little bit of a David Mamet film, because, you know, there are things called, there's a whole genre called Mamet speak, that people talk in a Mamet film in a very kind of stylized way. And that was a very deliberate strategy on Lynch's part. He he worked very hard with the cast to, to, till he could get them to talk in a particular uh, manner. And so I think that underscores the, the strangeness of that scene. Not only, not only the awkwardness, Mary doesn't introduce Henry, he just sits there and <laughs> then the mother says, you sound like a very clever fellow or whatever it is. I mean, they, they say these absurd things to each other in a very odd way. And so I think it just, it kind of ratchets up that inherent awkwardness in this, this, this scene. Well, and, and then, and you mix the sound design in with that. Like when the father comes out and starts talking about being a plumber and installing the pipes. And at that moment, the, whatever the soundscape, I can't remember if it sounds like a train going by or something. It gets yeah. so loud that he's yelling. And what he's saying is just like, I have installed all of these pipes. Um, but it also sounds like he's in, like, he's invoking something almost because of the, like the interplay of the, of the outside sound. And, and he is such like a, a weird, uh, like such an over smiley person. And then when they all leave at the table to, you know, when the, when Mary and or the mother leaves and Mary follows her and he just sort of sits there and smiles and they just, he just stays there. Like there's something. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's so interestingly unsettling um, about that. And, and, and it's interesting that he mentions that they, that he's lived there from the time it was, what does he say, open fields or something to the yes. hellhole it's become today, which is, again, another one of those organic mechanical contrasts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, one of the obvious things that this movie appears to be about, which uh, you and I have both been through, uh, is the anxieties, fears, and realities about becoming a parent. Mm -hmm. uh, I this movie would be really hard to watch if you were, if you were in that stage of life, because it perfectly captures that feeling. So, so, okay. So I, I talked about going to Mary's house is about going into somebody else's private space. Right. But when that, when, once the, the child is in there, you know, they're, they're married and the child is in the, the room. This is now Henry's private space that 
Mary and the child are in. But the difference is the child is not a guest in the same kind of way. This is this thing that you have helped create, helped given life to. And it is, it's, it is your space is now its space. And it is this force that you don't have entire control over and you are in service to, um, you know, especially, especially a newborn baby here again, the soundscape is amazing because it is the perfect version of the, the, the worst sounds you hear in the middle of the night when you're lying in bed, hoping to get some sleep. And you, and then you hear, you know, you hear a, a baby start crying and like that. And, and, and again, the relentless nature of that is so, uh, is so sort of powerfully depicted, even though, again, you look at it and you're like, well, this is what I'm looking at seems crazy, but it's also so real. Yeah. It, the, the way that it simply takes over your life. I mean, there's one scene when Henry just wants to go down and check his mail. And it's like, you know, the minute he steps out of the, into the hall, the baby starts crying. And it comes back in, the baby stops. He goes out, the baby starts. And yeah, as you said, uh, Sam, we have both been there. And that idea that, first of all, this small thing, it controls, it constrains, because obviously one of the dynamics in this film is about, you know, the baby is the product of a sexual encounter. And Henry now has sexual fantasies, especially for the woman across the hall. And his sexual life is in some ways constrained in ways that are uh, you know, there's that one scene where he reaches out to Mary in bed, uh, and it's quite clear that nothing nothing is going to happen. And so there's a sense that the that the baby not only controls what you can do in reality, but then forces you into this fantasy life that only exacerbates your your frustration. Um, and so I think Lynch captures that. I mean, I, I would never want to say that becoming a father was nightmarish. Uh, but there were certainly times when I there thought, moments. gosh, what in the world were we thinking bringing this thing into the world? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's interesting you talk about how it, it the the for, for Henry, it sort of accelerates that fantasy, like both in terms of the woman across the hall and the world of the radiator. He, uh, you know, goes goes back to that. There's a great moment. Um where I think it's maybe the first time he comes into the apartment when Mary is feeding the baby and he walks over to the bed and he crawls up onto the bed mm-hmm. on his knees and lies down and stares at the radiator. Mm-hmm. And there is this sense that he is, he is trying to escape <laughs> into this other world, maybe. But, 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 but that's what's interesting about that scene too, Sam, because this is very important is there is a brief moment of, oh, this is okay. Mary's feeding the baby. The baby isn't crying. And he looks over at them and he smiles. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, it's a vision of domestic bliss. Uh, and then you're right. Then he does turn back to the radiator. But it's just brief. And I, and I, and I remember this. Our, our, our first child, our son, was a really difficult baby. And um, you know, didn't sleep through the night for a year and a half and all that kind of stuff. And, but I can still remember there were moments when you thought, oh, life actually can be kind of normal and happy for a few minutes. And, and to me, that becomes, the more I watch the film, that becomes one of the most poignant moments in the film because you're like, there's this glimpse of the possibility of domestic tranquility, but it's not going to happen. Right. And, 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 and you saying that made me also think about, again, when you, um, when you, when, when you have a newborn, especially if it's your first your world also gets very small 
and and this this film depicts that in this room this is a very small room this becomes the entire world um and then there so there is this it's important to note that there are moments when mary leaves when henry leaves the, this this very small world mm-hmm. um so another thing that i th- i find a really powerful image in this is um has to do with the things that we keep to ourselves the things wow. that we don't share um even the things we keep from the people closest to us. So there's the great moment when Henry goes down to check the mail. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, when you go, when he goes down into this lobby, there is never another person here, right? So he goes mm-hmm. down and, and he, he gets something from the mail, goes out into the street and here's where he opens up. I, and it's, it's so hard to see exactly what it is, but he opens up and it's this little worm thing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then he brings this back up to the room and she asks, was there any mail? And I don't remember if he says no or he ignores her. I can't remember. And then he hides it away in this cabinet, uh, you know, and and then later in the movie, when he goes to that, sometimes he'll go look at it. Sometimes he'll go and just touch it. But the the sound changes. There's this sort of hum that it has like that. This has this is something to him that has some kind of uh, special power to him or power over him but it's something that he definitely does not share like he he checks to make sure she's not there or that she's asleep before he goes there so there is this sense that even in this tiny world there are things that he is hiding away from her things that are only only he knows about yeah and and you know and i don't want to get too allegorical too freudian but the uh, the imagery is clear it's it's another one of the it's it's another sexual reference it's a it's an it's an image of a sperm or the or the or the baby and and it, and also that little the little box that con- contains it um it kind of foreshadows there's a there's a moment later on in, in lynch's great film um, a holland drive right where there's that small box that contains that the mystery in, in, inside and lynch loves that idea of things Kind of hiding other other things, and then the cabinet. You said the cabinet becomes kind of a kind of a metaphor for those things that yeah that we that we keep to ourselves. So, um, and and then and then the radiator as well is another hidden interior life uh, interior life piece. So it so one of the things that I that I started to think about with this movie is that it's that room is such a one way to read this and probably the wrong way, but one way to read this is that that room is, is his mind and his self. And there are the different corners of, 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 of that. There are these, um, there are the parts that he lets people into, lets Mary into that the child sort of forces, needs to force its way into, to a certain degree. There are the things that he, uh, the, the, the darker corners are the things that he hides, the things that he, um, you know, you see the imagination, you see all of, you see the, you see that it's a location for desire. Um, so, so that made me just think, think again, because this is also, I mean, this, uh, the, the, the title of this movie has to do with the head, right? We see the head at the very beginning of it. Um, uh, so, so like that, that gave me an inroads to thinking about a possible way to think about this space, because in the same way he goes to, he gets invited into Mary's space and Mary comes into his space, that there is something beautiful about letting somebody into your own, you know, personal interior space, but there is also something 
scary about that. And there are aspects of that that you probably never share with people. Um, mm-hmm. So, so to me, this, I mean, you can think of, it's possible to think of this in terms of how you think about the self and how you think about the self in relationship to others, especially in a family setting, especially in a parental setting. Yeah. Maybe that's a bad read of the film, but that's, that <laughs> that's definitely something that, that jumped out at me. Um. I'm going to ask a question that I usually wait a little bit later for, uh, but, but I want to know, like, what do you want to talk about with this one? There's, I mean, there's a million things we haven't talked about, but I want to try to hand you the ball a little sooner here. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk a little bit more. I, I already referred to this. So I want to talk a little bit more about the, um, this notion of the interpenetration of the mechanical and the organic, just, just, just because I think it, it underlies so much of the imagery in the film, and I think it even underlies the way that Lynch is trying to think about human nature. So, you know, one of the ways we see this initially is the elevator doors, right? They, I mean, there are these mechanical things, but they look like somehow they're, they're, they're all globby. Uh, it's almost like something has been growing on them. You see the radiator, uh, kind of growing with moss, kind of growing around the radiator. I mean, even, even something like Henry tossing coins in water. Um, I think the coins came from, at one point in the film, they were going to have a bunch of, they were going to have a couple people fighting over dimes in the alley, and David Lynch had all these dimes, and Jack Nance kept picking them up and keeping them. But, but to me, the most interesting element of this is the, um, is the man-made chickens. Um, the, 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 the scene in... Uh, at Mary's house, it's one of my favorite scenes in the, in, in the film. There's just so much about that uh, about that interaction that I love. I love the grandmother in the kitchen uh, tossing the salad or being made to toss the salad. But you know, he brings out these chickens and he says they're they're man made, they're new, you know. And then Henry's like, "Do I cut it open like a like a regular chicken?" So this idea that something that's man made, so it's artificial and yet it's organic. Okay, it goes back to me to the other theme in the film, which is how you deal with, with sexuality. And the, the man in the planet um, is operating a mechanical device, but it's the mechanical device that becomes the representation of Henry's, uh, of Henry's sexuality. So it's pulling a lever or a lever, it's pulling a lever that releases the sperm. So it's like you have a mechanical process, but then you have this organic thing happening. Uh, and, then, and then, and so you get the baby, which is analogous in some ways to the man-made chicken. Um, and even things like, like Bill's arm, you know, which, which, which is now kind of fixed. So it's almost like the, 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 the natural, the, the organic arm has become mechanical. And so to me, that's, that's just this ongoing kind of um, obsession of Lynch's in which he sees the world not necessarily divided into organic and mechanical, but somehow thinking about, well, what does it mean to be a human being? Um, are we just kind of following out the directives of these forces, which could be represented as mechanical in ways that we actually have to obey them? And if that's the case, you know, what, 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 what would it mean? What does it mean to actually be able to act freely? And I think that's another reading of this film to me. And that is that Henry is a person who has seemingly no agency. 
that he's seeking agency and there's no way that he can find it because he gets thwarted uh, at, at every turn, both by external forces larger than him and even by those internal forces that kind of that kind of drive him. So that's why ultimately he escapes into some kind of, well, first he commits murder, and then he escapes into kind of a, a fantasy because there's no there's no way out for him. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, one of the lines that is, uh, especially the first time I watched this, that is one of the most ominous uh, lines goes back to that being at, at Mary's family's house. Um, and it, it touches on this idea um, that, that you were talking about, which is when, when Mary says they don't even know whether it's a baby. Yes. Like that. It's like, like this thing exists, but we don't know what it is. And, and, you know, and, and that, that makes me think of the man-made chickens as well. Like, well, are they chickens? Are like, 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 what is this? You know, this is this thing, which uh, appears to be something. And this child she gave birth to, came through some natural processes but but what is it and what is its origins um that's such a that i i like what i wonder um and i don't think either of us it sounds like had this experience is what would it have been like to have gone to this movie knowing nothing about it and hearing the line they don't even know whether it's a baby <laughs> like like that that that's something that i think would be such a like slap in the face moment of like what what is about to happen where you know i i like i knew i knew going into this because this is this is a movie that had such a a legacy and stuff that i had heard about and read about that like oh i knew where we were headed that line i assume without without any previous context hits in a in a particularly interest because it hits me anyhow but i think it hits in a particularly interesting way well there's a couple of interesting things about that and and uh well uh, autobiographically, you know, Lynch not only was a new father at the time, in fact, he he divorced his first wife during the course of the film, but his his first child, his daughter Jennifer, was born with clubbed feet. And so he was dealing, in a sense, with her deformity, not that she's equivalent to the baby or the monster, but still there's this notion that not only do you have a child, but you have a child that requires additional special care and has to undergo, you know, what are painful and difficult operations. The other reason why that's an interesting line is um, we do not know to this day how Lynch created the baby. Um, Lynch has resolutely refused to talk about it. Um, and it's not even clear that anybody who worked on the film knows either. Um, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, how he created the baby, but nobody really knows. And I think that's another element we should, we should note about this film, which we haven't really talked about, Sam, and that is that the special effects for, for a film that was made with no budget over a four and a half year period, the special effects, and, and I should just note the seamlessness of that four and a half year shoot. I mean, there's a famous example, right, where Henry opens the door at one point and comes into the room a year and a half later. Um, Jack Nance maintained that that, hair, that hairdo for four for four and a half years, but it just it's it's astonishing to me that you know he was able to create those effects, and so the baby effects, but also the animation effects. Um, Lynch started experimenting with animation as, as early as 1967 when he was still an art student in Philadelphia, um, and so it's just it's astonishing to me what he was able to accomplish uh, with those with those effects. Well, it's interesting on Criterion, the Criterion channel, they have, I, I watched a few of his like early shorts, you know, um, because his, his, his 
dream started with this idea of like, what if my paintings could essentially come alive? What if I could animate my paintings? Which is funny because as somebody who spent a lot of time painting in college, I had those exact same dream. I remember literally having dreams about painting things that started to move. Um, so it was interesting to watch, uh, to watch, especially is it it's six man, six men vomiting. Is that what that's six called? Six men getting sick. sick. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that literally seems like, can I make a painting move and sort of come to life? Um, but it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting to, uh, to see, to watch those and sort of see the seeds of, um, you know, some of the things that he had to, you know, to animate, to do, uh, to, to make this, cause this, this movie looks amazing too, is another, another piece of it. And one of the things that I, that I, read about and you know we talk about sort of the idea of an auteur is because this is such a small budget thing that lynch's hands is in so much of this you know because there just there isn't even that much of a of a crew to this so the fact that he is plays a big hand in the sound design plays a big hand in all of these things that um that this really is a movie that he is deeply deeply involved in every aspect of yeah, and we talked about sound, and of course, sound is actually important in Six Men Getting Sick as well. But we, but we should also say that this is gorgeous black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the, uh, it's just you know, and it has to be in a sense, it has to be in black and white. And uh, it's it's interesting that you know Lynch has only done two black and white films. He's only done this, this, and the Elephant Man. It's kind of surprising to me that he's gone for color in his other films because. Black and white is such the right medium for this in terms of the sharpness of the shadows, the sharpness of the of, of the images. Um, and so I think that's one of the things I, I love about the film. There's a, there's a particular quality to the black and white in this film as well. It's kind of hard to describe, but um, there's something about uh, it's almost like a, it's almost like a pen and ink etching, though the crispness of the black and white. Um, so I just I think that's a really another important part of the, of the film's effect. Well, I would say there is no mistake that this is somebody who started as a two-dimensional visual artist. Yeah. Like there, there are so many of these things that if you pull, if you pull stills, even thinking about the 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 sort of poster image of Henry with the the shavings in the background, like like all of those things are like those are those are well designed and lit, and I mean they, they appear like they're supposed to be just two dimensional stills. You know, so, so much of this stuff. Um, we talked about this. This is this movie's connection to The Shining. Kubrick, you know, screening this for uh, for the people making the film, um, and Kubrick loving this movie. Uh, I think there's lots of connections between this and the shining. It was really interesting. This, this they make a great double feature together. I think um, uh, I'm curious, your thoughts about connections between this and the shining. Yeah. Well, the, the uh, obviously the obvious, the obvious connection, which uh, is, is the obvious thematic connection, which is one reason why we watch this after the shining, right? That is, you know, what, what happens when fathers don't behave the way fathers are supposed to behave. So um it's, it's not so it's another one of the you know what happens when the family unit can't hold together uh this is a family unit that never even came together mm-hmm. but the reason why kubrick loved it and the reason why he he showed it to the, the before he filmed the shining was there's it's the unsettling feeling that the film gives you and it kind of gets back to what you said earlier sam because we talked about the fact that you know this this shows you reality in, in, in some ways, and yet it, it feels unsettled. That's the way The Shining is, right? We talked a lot about how oh, you know, everything in The Shining is 
almost everything is in, is in the full light of day. And yet the goal is to make you feel unsettled. And so I think Kubrick found his own way in, in color and light. He found his own way to unsettle the audience in a way which is opposite from what, from what Lynch is doing, but is also quite similar. Absolutely. In, yeah. In terms of that feeling. You also get the, 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 you know, along with the, the kind of family stuff, the other thing you get is the uh, kind of isolation and loneliness, you know, definitely thinking about Henry in the outside world, but even in this small room. Um, and then on, on a much, on a much lighter note, you get really great floor designs and floor patterns. So mm-hmm. in the lobby, you get that sort of zigzag carpet, which Lynch is going to use that, that imagery. I mean, I thought instantly about Twin Peaks when I saw yes. that is like, okay, well, I, I, I know where I am here. Um, but, but, you know, The Shining also famously has, uh, has very famous flooring. So maybe there's a connection there. Now it's interesting. You talked about Kubrick's love for Lynch and Lynch's love for Kubrick and, you know, and this sort of constellation of filmmakers. Cause one of the questions that I wrote, and this is, this is moving maybe off this movie specifically a little bit, but more to think about that relationship is, um, <laughs> it must feel good to like, feel like, Oh, a filmmaker. I love loves other filmmakers that I love. Uh, and I bring that up in part because one of my absolute favorite filmmakers, I have the opposite feeling with, and that is, I love every film Quentin Tarantino's ever made. He, he is the, he is the filmmaker I came to at the right age where I've see, watched everything he made kind of as it came out. Um, and I, he just, he had a book that came out this week, Tarantino did that I started reading and I'm, I'm, and he also has a podcast that I listen to. And I'm always drawn to the fact that the movies he loves are things where I'm like, that sounds fine, but I'm not really into that. So it's so, so I, my thought was, well, it must feel nice to be like the filmmakers I love would recommend to me the movies that I, movies that I would also love instead of my relationship with Tarantino, where it's like, I want you to watch that stuff, process it through your brain and make something that I love. Cause that's more of what happens there. I, I, I should mention the other filmmaker that, uh, that Lynch loves is Jacques Tati. Mm. Uh, which which is really interesting to me as well, and, and I wonder if that has something to do with silence in Tati's films, his use of his use of sound. Yeah, I, I also want to mention that he, just as Lynch, uh, just as Kubrick showed Eraserhead before The Shining, Lynch showed Sunset Boulevard before Eraserhead, and he says Sunset Boulevard is in his top five. Mm. Of course, his character Gordon Cole in Twin Peaks is named for a character who we never see in Sunset Boulevard, but who is the one that keeps calling uh, right. uh, Norma Norma in, in the film to ask about her car, uh, Gordon Cole. I thought about Chaplin and Tati a little bit in that first. So the first 11 minutes, there's no dialogue and you just see Henry moving through the world. And especially the, the shot where there are like the weird mounds of dirt Yes. And the he's breast, like, it, the breast like mounds. Of yes. Dirt. And the way he kind of walk, like, he doesn't just walk over them, but he walks over them. And which made me think of Chaplin, made me think of Tati a little bit. So, so I feel like there are definitely moments of, of silent film performance in, uh, in this, uh, for sure. Um, do you, uh, do you see connections in terms of thinking about Lynch, um, this as Lynch's first feature film connecting this to other, works by lynch yeah well you know as we've already alluded to there there are you know certainly the electricity uh stuff which comes up in several of his films but i think in terms of films that kind of play with reality and dreams right i think lost highway is an obvious one you know where one character becomes another character halfway through the film 
Um, and I think his last two films, I think both Mulholland Drive and even to a greater extent Inland Empire are also films where it becomes very difficult at times to distinguish between reality and what's uh, an act and actuality. But there are, there are those who think that this was Sil Lynch's best film. I mean, there are some critics who think that he never made another film quite as great as this one. Hmm. So one quote that I read a couple places is Lynch saying this is his most spiritual film. So I'm curious uh, your thoughts upon hearing that. Yeah, that's, you know, Lynch loves to talk about his films, and I'm not sure that what he says about the films illuminate them very clearly. They only actually deepen the mystery. Yeah, I I read that he was trying to, um, he was debating whether or not to make this film, and he claims, he says he opened a Bible, right, and read a Bible verse. And now he he won't tell you what the verse was. He doesn't know if it's Old Testament or New Testament, but but anyway, he closed the Bible and decided to make the film. Um, I I guess you could call it, I don't know what he wants to mean by spiritual, right? This is a a guy that's into transcendental meditation. Um, I I think maybe it's spiritual in the sense that he's really thinking of what what, what is the essence of being human? What, what, what does it really mean to, to, to create another human, to have relationships with other humans, to struggle, as I said earlier, with the notion of what does it mean to be free as a human being? And it's also spiritual, if you want to think about it cosmically, because it's both about, you know, the world around us, the planet, but somehow there's a sense in which the planet is actually inside our heads. So I think it's really the one film where he's trying to figure out how do people fit into kind of existential reality? I mean, his other films, if I think about them, they're really set in, you know, um, Blue Velvet is, the atmosphere is small town. Um, Holland Drive, Inland Empire, the, 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 the cosmos is, what does it mean to relate to Hollywood? But this is a film where it's really, how do I literally relate to the cosmos? Because you have the scenes of the stars, mm-hmm. uh, you know, beyond the planet. So maybe that's what he means by spiritual. All right, Barrett, we are uh, we are basically uh, out of time here. We managed to talk about this movie. We didn't talk about the titular Eraserhead scene at all. We didn't talk about uh, the song in heaven. And uh, there's I have this whole list of things that I'm not going to bring up that are like, what do you think about this questions? Because I did write them and then said, I'm not going to ask you those. So I feel like like there's so much more that can be explored in this movie, which is what makes it great. Like like we, we took a particular take on it, but I feel like there's lots of other directions, um, lots of other directions you can go. Um, what do you have for us for next week? How do we follow this up? Well, <laughs> well, I'm continuing with the theme of dysfunctional families or fathers that we don't want to have. Uh, and I want to follow it up with the 1955 Night of the Hunter uh, with, uh, with Robert Mitchum. And, and, I, and I will make a, another connection to Eraserhead. I discovered recently that there was a, um, a group of, of, uh, of, there was a poll by noted, uh, that rated the best first time feature films. And Racerhead came in number two, behind, of course, Citizen Kane. But there were two other films in the top ten, one of which, which one of which we've watched, which is Breathless, Godard, and the other, which is Night of the Hunter, which is Charles Lawton's, uh, the actor's debut film. In fact, the only film Charles Lawton ever directed. Uh, anyway, so I think that will close out our terrifying father's uh, run. Well, I, this is a movie that I watched about a year ago. This is great. This is Robert Mitchum, right? Uh, 
yeah. So, um, so one of our first episodes was a Robert Mitchum movie. We'll come back, and this is a great Robert Mitchum performance. Um, uh, it will change the way you think of the song "Leaning on the Everlasting Arms." And uh, yeah, this is such a good movie. I'm excited to watch this. I'm excited to watch this with my daughter. I think she's gonna she's gonna be super into this. Well, Barrett, thank you. I I, I say this every week, but I really want to. I really want to say this for you to hear it right now. Thank you for recommending this film and for talking about it. I think there is a reason that we're wa- that we're watching this so late into the run of this podcast because I realize you're sharing with me and with our listeners something which is very important to you. And uh, had you recommended this movie week one or two, we couldn't have had this conversation in the same way. So I feel like you were telling me I was ready to have a conversation about this. And uh, I this was great. I, I like This is a movie that I will... I don't know the next time I'll watch it, but I don't know that I'll stop thinking about it for a long time. Um, and it it makes me think about Lynch in different ways. Um, somebody who I've seen a lot of his work, but um, it makes me kind of want to revisit other things, uh, thinking about what he's doing here. Uh, this was absolutely great. So thank you so much for recommending this film. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about The Night of the Hunter in the video store.